Good evening. Good to see everyone tonight. It's time for us to begin. I know that uh, Ben has started his class back, and so we've got a lot of people that have gone in there, and I know that he's got a good class going, but uh, glad that you are here tonight. Uh, did, do I have a reader tonight? Did we have anyone? All right. We got uh, this going to read for us. Let's begin, and we'll have a word of prayer, and then we will start Acts chapter 17. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to be here tonight and to be your people. Our Father, we're thankful for the book of Acts. We're thankful that we can study from your word and soak it into our lives and our hearts and that we can grow from it. Our Father, we pray that we will spend our time doing this that will be pleasing to you, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. Our dear Father, we pray for the Willow Avenue Church. We pray for her elders. We pray that you will bless these men and give them wisdom as they shepherd the flock here. We pray for the preachers and the work that we're engaged in, that we can approach things wisely and with courage and to do that which is pleasing to you. Our Father, we pray for our president. We pray for our Congress and our Senate. Lord, we know that bad decisions are made in this country all the time, and it's because they don't follow the guidance of your word. We pray, Father, that these things can be changed, but we know that you rule in the kingdoms of men. Our dear Father, above all things, we are thankful for your Son and his sacrifice that we can have eternal redemption. Go with us through the class tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 17. Let's see here. There we go. Quick review. I always like to do a quick review just so that you can get this ingrained in your mind about the missionary journey. This, of course, is the second missionary journey. And the Apostle Paul starts in Antioch, which is the uh, new hub of the church. It's largely Gentiles. He leaves from there. He travels to Lystra, where he picks up Timothy. Then he goes to Antioch of Pisidia. Then he travels across the water. And he comes over here to Philippi. While he's in Philippi, he converts Lydia. He casts out the demon-possessed girl. He meets the Philippian jailer. He converts him. Then he leaves Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. When he's there, the people are not receptive. There's a great uproar. He ends up leaving there. Then he goes to Berea. In Berea, he says the people there were more noble than those of Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Very well-known verse, Acts 17 and verse 11. Then he goes to Athens, and this is where we have been. When he gets to the city of Athens, we have talked about the fact that the, uh, up on the hill there is the Acropolis. On top of that, you've got the temple to their goddess, and that is Athena. You see that uh, Athens takes the name of their goddess, and that is Athena. And so the Areopagus, which is the second highest hill, which you see at the bottom here, this is where Paul is. He starts off preaching in the synagogue, and then he is so disturbed by all the idols and the false, god, he's, the false gods, he starts teaching in the marketplace. The people are intrigued by what he says, and so they said, come and speak to us in the Areopagus. And so he gets there, and what he says to them is, I want to tell you about the unknown God. 
The unknown God doesn't dwell in temples. He doesn't need your care. He doesn't need your food. He gives life and breath to all. He controls the boundaries of men. And we talked about that, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And he talks about the fact that God has placed a knowledge in all human beings that he exists. And he says, so that we should grope for him. The idea is there's something innate in man that we can know that God exists and we should be caused to look for him and then providentially God will provide a way. All right, then you get to verse number 29. Let's go ahead and read 29. We're going to pick up at 30, but let's read 29 just to get it in context. 29 and 30. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, so Paul is in the Areopagus. He is preaching this, and you can see over his shoulder is the Acropolis and the temple to Athena, and he says God doesn't dwell in temples God doesn't need you to sacrifice food to him. God gives us life and breath. And then he says, and the times of this ignorance, God overlooked. What did he just describe what they were doing as? He says it's ignorance. That had to really, you know, be a punch in the gut. He says the times of this ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, I want to pick out several things from this verse. Number one, when it says the times of ignorance, God overlooked. What is he talking about? He's saying that there were some things in the past that God, the King James says, winked at. The New King James says he overlooked. I think this is especially true of the Gentiles. And I think that this shows us the justness the fairness of God. The Gentiles didn't have a written law like the Jews had, and so he's telling us God did not judge them as strictly. Why? God is fair. God is just. God is loving. You know, some people have the idea that God is this ogre in the sky, and he's sitting there waiting on us to mess up so that he can just zap us into hell. That's not, what, that's not the, the way the situation is. You know, I mentioned to you, that um, there was a lectureship recently, and they had called me by name a false teacher because of my teaching on 1 John 1, 7 through 9. I got a call this week, once again, over this issue, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. It seems like regularly I'm hearing about that. 1 John 1 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us it indicates that it continually cleanses us. And the idea is that if we are doing our best to walk in the light, and when we sin, we pray, that we are not in a state of constant fluctuation where I'm saved and I'm lost and I'm saved and I'm lost. Christianity is not in and out, in and out, in and out. If it were, what would happen is, we would, whether we go to heaven would depend on luck of the draw. Because think about this, what if I committed a sin of ignorance? According to these folks, if you commit a sin of ignorance, you're lost. And you stay lost until you say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins of ignorance. What if 
The thing about a sin of ignorance is you don't know you did it. That's why it's a sin of ignorance. You commit a sin of ignorance, an hour passes, two hours passes, three hours pass, and the Lord returns. What's your situation? According to that philosophy, you are lost. Brethren, I'm telling you, when you read, number one, that does not jive with what 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, because it indicates as we walk in the light, we have continual cleansing. Christianity is not a matter of saved and lost and saved and lost. And I'm not going to re-preach that whole sermon again, but um, someone had made that accusation, and I found an old guy in Woods sermon where he explained it so very well, exactly what I believe the book of 1 John teaches, and I put it online, and someone said, well, Guy in Woods is not the answer. Guy in Woods is not the answer, but the fact is he was teaching exactly what the Bible teaches. And what I read in the Bible is that God is fair, and he's just, and he's loving. God is trying to make a way for us to go to heaven. He is not going to say, you're a Christian now, you're walking in the light, you're being washed in the blood, you committed a sin of ignorance, bam, I got you. You're going to hell. And what we see about the Gentiles, even in a time when they didn't have the written law, it says that there were some things that God winked at. I kind of like that term, that he overlooked. Why? He is just and he's loving. He put the, in fact, he just got through telling them God has placed in mankind this desire so that they will look for him. And then when they look for him, he is just. And if they seek, he will find. God is going to provide a way for those who truly seek. God is just and he is loving. And that's what he's telling these Gentiles. All right? Now, what else does this tell us about the times of ignorance? He says the times of ignorance God winked at, but what? But now he commands every, everyone everywhere to repent. I oftentimes hear people say this, what if a person lives in the jungles of South America and they never hear the truth and they are in ignorance? Can they be saved if they're in ignorance? Surely God's not going to condemn a person because of ignorance. Is it true that God won't condemn a person because of ignorance? Listen to what I'm going to say very carefully. It's true that God will not condemn a person because of ignorance. God condemns people because of sin, right? If anyone is lost, it's not because of ignorance, it's because of sin. But the fact of the matter is, ignorance doesn't wash away sin. The only thing that washes away sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you are ignorant, you will be lost, but you're lost because of sin because you don't know the remedy for your sin. So when people say God condemns people because of ignorance, that's not right. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you have to have the remedy, and ignorance is not the remedy. Does that make sense? So let's look at, uh, let's look at a passage here. This is Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whoever, is that big enough for you all to read up there? Okay, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? Let's look at this passage backwards. He, he points out several things. You've got to call to be saved. 
But before you can call, you've got to believe. And before you believe, you've got to hear. So in reverse, this is what he teaches. You've got to, the person who hears, you must first hear, and then you can believe, and then you can call on the Lord, and then you can be saved. So what if you're ignorant and you don't hear? According to this, what if you never hear? If you don't hear, you can't believe, and you can't call, and you can't be saved. What does that say about ignorance? If a person never hears, he can't do any of these things. You've got to hear the gospel if you're going to be saved. Now, just as a quick note, I always have to point this out because it says you have to hear, you have to believe, you have to call on the Lord, and you shall be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? That is explained two times in the Bible. It is explained in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, and it's explained in Acts 22 and verse 16. So at the top, in reverse, hear, believe, call, shall be saved. It's mentioned two times. Here's the first one, Acts 2.21, it says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is right out of the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter said that to them, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Then verse 37, the Bible says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? He just said, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. What does that mean? What shall we do? Then Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. How do you call upon God to save you? You don't simply say, Lord, Lord. You know, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So here he said, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. They said, how do we do it? He said, repent, let every one of you be baptized. The way in which we call upon God to cleanse us is by repenting and being baptized. Now, the second time that this phrase is explained in the Bible is in Acts 22, 16. This is where Paul says to Ananias, or Ananias says to Saul, and now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to get into a big grammar lesson here, but calling on the name of the Lord here is an adverbial participle of manner. It shows the manner in which the main verbs are accomplished. Quite literally, grammatically, what he is saying is, by being baptized and washing away your sins, you will have thus called on the name of the Lord. It means exactly the same thing as Acts 2. He said, call on the name of the Lord. They said, how? Repent and be baptized. Here, he says, the way that you call on the name of the Lord is by being baptized and washing away your sins. That is the two ways that the Bible explains this. Now, if you go back to this, hear, believe, call, and you shall be saved. What does that mean? You've got to hear the gospel. You can't be saved in ignorance. Once you learn it, you've got to believe it. You've got to call on the Lord by repenting and being baptized, and you shall be saved. So, going back to the question, the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So what about a person in the jungles in South America somewhere, and he's in ignorance? What about him? Can he be saved in ignorance? He can't. 
Why? Because if you don't hear, you can't believe. If you don't believe, you can't call. And if you can't call, you can't be saved. Yes? I think that is the answer because what did he just tell these Gentiles? He said, God is not far from any of us. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. Romans 1.20, the things that are made cause us to know that God is there. Once we know and once we seek, Matthew 7.7, 7, if we seek, he will find. What we're learning here in Acts 17 is that God is just, God is fair. He's not going to make it impossible for people to be saved. If a person is a true seeker, God is just and God is fair. And that's what we have to remember. And what do we learn about these Gentiles in the times of this ignorance? God overlooked. Why? He is fair. He is just in the way he approaches man. And we've got to remember we are in the hands of a just and a fair and a loving God. All right. Now, he says in verse 31, let's read that one. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, he says the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now has commanded everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Why do we need to repent? Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Now, I want you to notice, it says he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. I've sometimes heard people say, well, that means that God has already picked the specific day. I actually dug into the language here when I was reading it. It doesn't necessarily mean that. What it means is that God has appointed that there's going to be a judgment day. Has he picked the day? I don't know. I can't tell that by the language here. Literally, it means he has set aside that there's going to be a day of judgment. All right? And then it says that he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Repent. Why? Because he's going to judge you. Sometimes I hear people say this. You shouldn't preach that hard preaching that says, repent or you're going to be lost. Repent or God's going to punish you. You need to preach repent because God loves you. What does Paul preach here? He says, repent because there's a day in which God's going to judge the world. What does that mean? What's the thrust of that? How would you put that in your own words? Isn't that what he's saying? Repent because you're going to stand before God on the day of judgment, and if you haven't made changes, you are going to be lost. Should we preach that we should repent because God loves us? Yes. Should we preach that we should repent because Christ died? Yes. Should we preach that we should repent because there's a day of judgment coming in which you're going to stand before Christ and be saved or lost? Yes. That, that is God's love. And that is what Paul preached on this occasion. All right. Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Okay, some people, when they heard it, 
They mocked him. Literally, the language says they just kept on mocking him. They, they thought it was ridiculous. Um, why do you think they mocked him? Do you think any of them had preconceived ideas so that when they heard him, their preconceived thoughts just caused them to dismiss him? Why do you think they mocked him? Okay, for some of them, it would be that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Stoics and the Epicureans, um, this went against their philosophy, all of the things they'd been taught and that they believe, they heard something new and they're like, this is ridiculous. Yes, sir. Okay, I think for some of them, they probably didn't want to change. Why would that be? Do you think that any of them maybe had positions where they were teachers in the college? They taught philosophy. Maybe they taught contrary to this. And if they adopted this or admitted that he's right, it means that they're wrong and it would affect what they were teaching. Could there be somebody like that in Athens? Probably. What's that? Still is today. Absolutely. Do you think for some of them, maybe their pride was involved in this? Yeah, there's no doubt. You know, uh, John 12, 42, nevertheless, amongst the chief rulers, many also believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him, lest they be thrown out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. What does that mean? They don't want to lose their positions. They didn't want to lose what men thought of them. You think the same thing was going on in Athens? Of course. Of course. Not, there's nothing new under the sun. Everywhere you go, it's the same thing. Well, it says everybody heard it. They heard the idea of the resurrection of the dead. That's ridiculous. Who believed? He's saying people are going to rise from the dead. They mocked him. But other people said, we want to hear some more about this. You know, we are intrigued. We want to hear this again. Now, I would ask this question. The people that mocked him and they rejected it, why did they do that? Is, is it because, did, did Paul do a poor job in his presentation? Was it the fault of Paul? No, of course not. He's speaking by the inspiration of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We do, do learn a few things from this, though. Number, number one, we learn when we encounter this today, people have always been like this. This is not new. Some people think that they're too intelligent for Christianity. And in Athens, they thought they were the intellectually elite in fact, in their day, they would have been considered that. They're the most intelligent. This man saying people are going to raise from the dead. They mocked it. It was beneath them. Same thing happened today? Yeah, of course. Uh, we also learn some people will ridicule you if you hold to God. We learn that it's not the fault of the teacher. We learn that you should try it anyway. And we learn we shouldn't expect a different outcome. That is, some people are going to reject it, and some people are going to be open. We want to hear some more about it. It's going to come down to the heart of the individual. Okay, verse 33. So Paul departed from among them. And however, 34. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Arapagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Okay. Some people joined him. That means probably means they followed him. They probably became Christians. We don't know for sure what's entailed in that. But among them, one of them is Dionysius. 
He is an Areopagite. That's a mouthful, isn't it? What does it mean that he's an Areopagite? What was this place where they were? Down on the bottom is the Areopagus. This is the place they met and the governing body met there. It probably means he was one of the governors. This probably means that he was a man of intellect, he is a man of prominence, and he, he believed it. He was convinced. He became a Christian. History says that later there was an elder in Athens who was named Dionysius. Don't know, it's history. Uh, history is not uh, inspired like the Bible, but if that's true, it's very possible that it is him. And then a woman named uh, Damaris, Damaris, uh, she must have been of some prominence since she is named here. All right, let's go into Acts chapter 18. Let's, uh, let's read, just read verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, you can see on the map here, here he is in Athens, and he's going to go over to Corinth. It's about a 50-mile journey. Um, Corinth is a, an important commercial city. I read that there were about 760,000 people who lived in Corinth. But get this, this part was very interesting. Out of the 760,000, 300,000 of them were citizens, and 460,000 of them were slaves. Think about that. 300,000 citizens, 460,000 slaves. I can't wrap my mind around that. Corinth was a city that was renowned for wickedness. In fact, there was a phrase that existed in that time. It was to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize was the equivalent of being immoral. It's like, yeah, you're going to go, uh, it's like carousing. He's going to Corinthianize. He's just a wicked, lustful, so, uh, fleshly indulgent person. In Corinth, they had a center of worship, just like we just read on the Acropolis. They worshiped Athena. Every big city had something like this. In Corinth, they had a temple on the hill, and they worshiped Aphrodite. In the next chapter, we're going to see that he goes to Ephesus, and they worship Diana, and they have a temple on the hill. Every one of these big cities, that's why I wanted to show you the temple and let you get the feel of the city, because all of these big cities are very similar. In fact, this is an artist rendition of what the uh, temple of Aphrodite would have looked like in uh, Corinth. Here is uh, another uh, artist rendition of it, and this is the statue of the goddess Aphrodite. And that uh, you can think about how that compared to Athena and what we saw in Athens. And so Paul goes into this city, and they, they worship Aphrodite. I read that they had 1,000 what they considered sacred prostitutes. And so what would happen is a lot of these prostitutes, I guess maybe all of them, were slaves. And so people would come to this center of worship, and it's kind of like the tourist attraction. What draws people to Athens? Well, it's going to be Athena and the temple. And what draws people to Corinth? It's Aphrodite. They would go there. They would party. They would uh, engage in uh, sexual relations with these prostitutes. 
It is something that drew people there. It brought a lot of money and commerce to this particular city. I found a little video that I'm going to get uh, Chris to show us, and it just um, it's a one-minute clip on what life would have been like for women in Corinth at that period of time. Is it ready to roll back there? Oh, Chris, not back there. Um, Jonathan, you got it? All right. Can we get the sound? This says the life of a Greek woman, if you can't read it, up there on the left. And this would have been where some of the, the slaves would have lived. Strabo relays that the temple of Aphrodite was one of Corinth's most famous landmarks. This was largely due to the temple's female patrons. These hetairai, as they were called, were donated to the goddess by both men and women. According to Strabo, the temple of Aphrodite contributed greatly to Corinth's wealth. The hetairai were the temple's main attraction, and many visitors came to Corinth in search of their company, for which they spent frequently and frivolously. Okay, that's about all there was to it, but you can see on the outskirts, they have uh, women, they're the slaves, and uh, they are used as uh, temple prostitutes, and people came there. They said they spent freely and frivolously to engage in sexual relations at this temple. That gives you an idea of what we're talking about when Paul comes into the city of Corinth. This is a morally corrupt place. The religion is corrupt. This is not really about this goddess. It is a center of um, money. It's a money-making venture. It's about uh, sex. It's about fleshly desires. It's about drinking. That's Corinth. 760,000 people when Paul comes into this city. Okay, verse 2. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. And three. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for my occupation. They were tent makers. Okay, the first thing Paul does when he gets to Corinth is he's got to find a job. You've got to keep in mind, at this point, the church wasn't supporting him. So each place he went, he had to find a way to make money, and he also had to, to preach. And so by occupation, what was he trained to do? He's a tent maker. And so it says he meets two other people, Aquila and Priscilla. They were also tent makers. They were Christians. They had just come to Corinth. It says because the emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. If you go back and study the history, what had happened is the argument between the Jews constantly attacking Christians had gotten so bad that the Emperor Claudius said, I'm sick of it. All of you Jews leave Rome. He banned them. In the emperor's mind, in the Romans' mind, they couldn't tell the difference in a Jew and a Christian. 
They're all the same. It's this argument. These Jews branched off and they became Christians and there's this constant issue going on. Get out of here. And so he expelled all of the Christians from Rome. Well, we learn two of them, Aquila and Priscilla, they come to Corinth. They're living there. They're new there. They're tent makers. Paul meets them and they start working together. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're going to hear about Aquila and Priscilla. They are great, faithful Christians. Later in this chapter, we're going to learn that they teach Apollos the truth because Apollos was teaching John's baptism. Aquila and Priscilla are great, great people. I heard one of our, one of our speakers who was here for our CQ First event said that he was at a funeral and this, the woman, her husband had died earlier, the woman had passed away, and the man, the preacher, was doing the funeral. And as he concluded the funeral, he said, every time I think about this woman and this great couple that they were, he said, they remind me of Ananias and Sapphira. And he ended the funeral that way. He meant Aquila and Priscilla. If you think about Ananias and Sapphira, what comes to your mind? What's that? Okay, they were struck dead because of their sin, because they wanted glory. They wanted everyone to think how good they were. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. And the man closed his funeral by saying, every time I think of this couple, I think of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, Aquila and Priscilla is what he meant to say. He said his wife told him he said it afterwards, and he was utterly embarrassed. But uh, sometimes you put your foot in your mouth that way. Paul gets there. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. Um, I was reading, too, that when Claudius kicked the Jews and the Christians out of Rome, it was 20,000 people that had to leave. So now you've got 20,000 people looking for a new place to live and work. So let's go to, let's read verses 4 and 5. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come, Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, through the week, Paul is working, he's making tents, he is also going and persuading. The word here carries with it the idea of arguing, debating, trying to convince them, the Jews and the Greeks. It says that he was compelled by the Spirit. There's some manuscript argument here. Some say compelled by the word. I don't think it really matters. One way or another, Paul is feeling compelled to teach these people. Like we read when he went into to Athens, he was stirred in his spirit. It just bothered him. He had to preach the word to the, these people. Arton Gingrich says he was wholly absorbed in preaching. He's working because he has to. That's what you got to do to make a living. But he was wholly absorbed in the word of God. I thought, there, there's a lesson there for us, isn't it? He worked because he needed to do that to support himself, but he was wholly absorbed in the Word of God. I think sometimes we, we get it backwards. Sometimes we forget why we're really here, and we get wholly absorbed in our job. We get wholly absorbed into try to, trying to build our business. We get wholly absorbed in trying to make money, but... Why do we exist? You know, Revelation 2 says that God created us to bring Him glory. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 
Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the entirety of man. King James says, this is the whole duty of man. It's not about making money. It's not about having fun. It's not about your job. Your job is something that you do to support yourself through this life so that you can um, support the church and take care of your family. Paul worked because he needed to, but he was wholly absorbed in the Word of God. Isn't that a great lesson there in passing? Any thoughts? I know the bell's about to ring any second here. Okay, verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's preaching to the Jews, and they just won't listen. They will not accept it. And he says, you know what? I'm done. He shook his garment at them, and he said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. Some people will not change, no matter how effective you are, no matter how well you, you know the word. They blasphemed the word of God. Is it wrong when you've tried with some people and they don't want to hear it? Is it wrong to move on? No. It, isn't that what the Lord says to do? The Lord says you've got to make judgment sometimes. How about Matthew uh, 7, 6 and 7, when he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. What does that mean? Okay. There's some people you've got to make a judgment and you've got to see in your determination it's not worth it here. They're going to, to blaspheme. They're not going to receive it. It's, it's a difficult thing to look and say, don't cast your pearls before swine. Why does he say? Because they're going to trample it under their feet. They're going to ridicule it. They're not going to accept it. I've had times when I'm talking to someone, and very quickly I know, don't cast your pearls before swine. Stop. Move on. Other times it's harder to figure it out. And so you try, and you teach. But there comes a point when Paul says, I've done everything I can. Your blood is on your own head. I'm moving on. And the Lord told his disciples the same thing in Matthew chapter 10. When you go into the cities, if they reject you, what did he say? Shake the dust off your feet and move on. All right, we will stop there and pick up at verse number 7 next week. Thanks.